Morning. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, if I were to ask you who the main character in the first part of the book of 1 Samuel was, you'd probably answer Samuel, and I think you'd be right. But as we've, as we've made our way through the first uh, six chapters of this book, you've probably noticed that there are as many chapters in which Samuel doesn't appear as there are chapters in which he does. Because from chapter 4, verse 2, all the way through chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, Samuel's name doesn't appear once. But it's always good to uh, see old friends again, right? Our chapter this morning is entirely about Samuel. And if you think about it, right, chapters 1 through 3 chronicle his childhood, his birth and his childhood. Chapters 4 through 6, he's completely absent. And then from chapter 8 onwards, he's old and he's thinking about his successors. And so our story today from chapter 7 is really the only narrative that we have in the Bible about the prime years of his ministry. But it's a great story, uh, one I think that tells us a lot about his ministry as a whole. And so let's start our time this morning by uh, simply reading the text. Uh, Look at the first 14 verses of chapter 7. We'll talk about the story. Hear first the word of the Lord. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, And they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. 
and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. You've said in your word that you look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. And so we pray that you, by your grace, would work that in our hearts and allow us to treasure your word and even tremble at its power as we look to it now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me remind you where we're at in this story. Uh, the Israelites were routed at the Battle of Aphek by the Philistines. And in that battle, the Philistines take the Ark captive. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant was like the physical representation of the presence of God to the Israelites. Philistines carry it off. They place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. It's kind of like his war trophy because uh, this victory wasn't just the Philistines defeating the Israelites, but it's also the Philistines' god, Dagon, defeating the Israelites' god, Yahweh. That's how the Philistines saw it. But before they could even get the victory parade on the calendar... Bad things begin happening in Felicia left and right. The statue of Dagon ends up on the floor of the temple completely shattered. The people get tumors, the people get plagues, panic and terror spread throughout the land. And so the Philistines, utterly humbled by God, well, they send the ark back to Israel. And so the ark makes its way back to Israel, pulled by two cows on a cart, a quaint little town called Beth Shemesh. And this is a cause for great rejoicing. Uh, the people of Beth Shemesh throw this big party to celebrate. But then some of the men of Beth Shemesh treat the ark with contempt by looking at it, by examining it, completely disregarding everything that was written to them in the law of Moses about how you weren't even supposed to look at it. And so God strikes 70 of them dead. What do those Israelites do in response to that judgment? Confronted with the reality of the holiness of God, what do they do? Well, sadly, they do exactly what the Philistines did. Right? They just try to send God away. Just like the Philistines moved the ark from Ashdod to Gath, and then Gath to Ekron, and then from Ekron to Israel. Well, the people of Beth Shemesh, they moved the ark to a small town about 15 miles away called Kiriath-Jerim to the house of some guy named Abinadab. And that's where we pick up the story here in the beginning of chapter 7. Now, all of what I just summarized, covered in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, everything from the battle of Aphek all the way to the ark being brought to Kiriath-Jerim, all of that happens basically over the course of about seven months. But not 20 years pass. 20 years marked by a Philistine military domination over Israel, now, we don't have too much detail about what happened during those 20 years, but we do know from what happens in the rest of the chapter that even though the ark is back in Israel, the people were still deep in their idolatry. Now, oftentimes, when we think of idolatry in the Old Testament, we think of uh, Israel's pagan neighbors, right, worshiping their false gods instead of worshiping the God of the Bible. But that was never true of Israel. Even in the worst of times spiritually, that was never true of Israel because the Israelites always worshipped God. But they often worshipped other gods also. Canaanite deities like Baal and Ashtaroth. 
And so, yes, we pray and we make sacrifices to the Lord because the Lord is God. But we also pray and we make sacrifices to Baal since he's the sky god. He's the weather god. He can bless us with an abundant harvest. And we also pray and we make sacrifices to Ashtaroth because she's the goddess of fertility and she can bless us with many children. And the Israelites struggle with this, not just in 1 Samuel 7, but throughout their history, struggle with realizing that that's just not how it works. The God of the Bible is not just like one of many gods, each of whom has certain pros and and cons and, hey, have you considered this about this God? No, the God of the Bible is the only true God, the only one worthy of worship, even as we prayed about this morning. And so he's not going to share the hearts of his people with any gods which are not gods. Isaiah 42, 8, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. And that's because God is a jealous God. Now that language catches us a little bit off guard to to describe God as being jealous because we're used to thinking of that word as being strictly negative. You say, well, how how can you ascribe a, a negative characteristic like that to God? But that's the language that the Bible uses. The Bible says that God is provoked to jealousy when his people worship idols. The Bible tells us that the rationale behind the second commandment that Israel should not worship idols is I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Bible says, what God says about the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32, they have made me jealous with what is no God. But that's correct because God's jealousy is completely different from how we might think of jealousy in our own lives. Like when we're jealous of other people, man, I wish I had that. Well, that's a sinful coveting, right? That's us wanting something that God in his wisdom has not given to us. And so our jealousy is sin because it's an unrighteous desire for something that is not rightly ours. But when we say God is jealous, well, God is jealous because he and he alone is worthy and deserving of worship and glory, right? Worship and glory rightly belong to him. If I might give a, a human analogy, <clears throat> it is right, it is correct for a husband to feel jealousy if his wife is being affectionate with another man because his wife's affection should be given to him, should belong to him. In a similar way, it's right and correct for God to be jealous if his people are giving worship and glory to idols because to God and God alone belong that worship and glory. Ralph Davis puts it nicely, and I'm just going to quote him here. Only Yahweh lays this either or, all or nothing demand on his people. The other gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East were not so picky and intolerant. A a pagan devotee was welcome to address multiple gods and goddesses in prayer simultaneously. It is only in Israel that we meet this jealous God. And that's because only God is a truly holy God who is jealous for his own glory. False gods, they're just, they're happy with a seat at the table because they don't belong there. 
right? They're just happy to be there. God's not going to tolerate the presence of idols in his children's lives, not because he's petty, not because he's insecure or anything like that, but simply because he is holy and righteous and thus requires his children to do what is holy and righteous. And that's to worship the one who is truly worthy of worship. But that's where Israel finds itself in these 20 long years, provoking the Lord to jealousy because of their worship of idols. And one practical consequence of this provoking is that God uses the Philistines to oppress the Israelites as judgment for their idolatry. But now everything changes with that last phrase in verse 2. Look at your Bibles. After long and hard 20 years pass, It says, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The people have a change of heart. And look who they turn to. It's Samuel. It's been a minute, but he's back. Well, actually, he's been there all along. But this is the first time that Israel has collectively been humble enough to submit to his leadership in restoring their relationship to God. Because the Israelites are finally ready to repent of their sin. That word repent, it's a word we throw around a lot in our Christian lingo or Christian vocabulary, but maybe our understanding of repentance is incomplete. Like like maybe you think, well, repentance is being sorry for what you did. And I would say, yes, that's a part of repentance, but it's definitely not all of it. Repentance, true repentance, isn't just mourning. Or maybe you think, oh, repentance is being convicted in your heart about what you've done. Well, again, that's part of it, but not the full picture. True repentance isn't just inward conviction. Or maybe you think, well, repentance is just stopping whatever sin you're committing. Once again, partially correct, but true repentance isn't just turning away from sin. Well, if it's not just mourning, and it's not just inward conviction, and it's not just turning away from sin, then what is it? Well, let's look at the example of the Israelites repenting at Mizpah. We're going to see three aspects of repentance that show that true repentance is more than just those things that we just mentioned. First, you'll see that true repentance isn't just mourning. It's more than that. It's mourning over offending God. Uh, That is, just generally feeling bad or being sorry about what you've done isn't necessarily true repentance. No, true repentance is is feeling bad and, and being sorry primarily because of your sin against God. That is, true repentance is less concerned about the consequences of sin and more concerned about the one against whom you've sinned. If you think about it, this isn't the first time in recent chapters that the Israelites have felt bad about their sin. Look back just a few verses to the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 19. God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned. They mourned. There was weeping. There's sadness. There's grief as a result, direct result of their sin. 
But the important question we need to ask is why are they mourning? Is it because they've sinned against the holy God? Is it because they feel the weight of disobeying God's commands? No, look at the end of the verse. It's because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. They weren't mourning over their sin. They weren't mourning over their transgression against the holy God. They were. Their solution would not have been to just ship the ark somewhere else. They were primarily mourning about the deadly consequences and repercussions of their sin. But really, right, we, we saw this. Even the Philistines could mourn over consequences. Right? You'll remember how they mourned when they got hit with plagues and tumors. And there's another example of this from seven months earlier when the ark is first taken. Right? What are they grieving there? They're not grieving the sin that they've committed against the holy God. They're grieving the consequences that God made them suffer a great defeat and allowed the ark to be taken from them. Remember Phineas's wife? Her dying words? The glory has departed from Israel for the ark has been captured. What is she mourning? She's mourning the loss of the ark. She's not mourning the sin of the nation. Again, she mourns because of the consequences of sin, not because of the one against whom they had sinned. It's kind of like if I were to double park my car. Not that I would ever do such a thing, but just hypothetically speaking, suppose that I double park my car and I just run right into the store and I come out and waiting for me is an orange envelope on my windshield. Now at that point, I am mourning, I am grieving, I am weeping, but it's not primarily because I've broken the New York City traffic laws. It's because the DOT has dealt me a great blow. Right? The cause of my sorrow is the hit that my wallet takes. I'm primarily grieved over the consequences of my infraction, not because of the one against whom I'm committing that infraction. And so I hope I've made it clear that not all sorrow over sin is true repentance. Paul makes the same distinction in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he writes about godly grief and worldly grief. There is a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow that's primarily concerned about the consequences of sin, uh, God striking 70 men dead or losing the ark or, or getting a parking ticket. But then there's godly grief, a, a godly sorrow that's primarily concerned with the sin itself, the sin itself as an offense against the holy God. And that's what we see here in chapter 7. Look, at, look again at verse 2. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, not lamented because of judgment, not lamented because of the Philistines' oppression, but they lamented after the Lord. Then look at verse 6. They specifically addressed the one against whom they had sinned. We have sinned against the Lord. They'd come to realize that their biggest problem wasn't the Philistines. Uh, it wasn't military defeat. It wasn't these 70 guys who were struck dead at Beth Shemesh. Their biggest problem was their idolatry, was their sin against God. And recognizing that was crucial to their repentance. Because again, repentance is mourning about offending God. And you can't do that unless you know that you are offending him. 
And so with hearts that were truly mourning over their sin as an offense against the holy God, they turned to Samuel for help. The same Samuel who they had ignored entirely throughout the ark narrative, even after he was established as the prophet of the Lord, because they refused to submit to God's word. And so perhaps there's no greater evidence that their hearts were truly changed than that they were ready and willing to finally submit to his leadership. First we see from the Israelites that true repentance isn't just mourning. It's mourning over offending God. Second we see from the Israelites at Mizpah that true repentance isn't just inward conviction. It's also outward change. It's not just inward conviction. It's also outward change. Look at verse 3. Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. You'll, You'll see how Samuel includes both an inward conviction and an outward change. Inward conviction. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. Later in the verse, direct your heart to the Lord. God has to do a work in the heart to bring about repentance. God grants and graces with repentance because only God can change the heart. Only God can bring true conviction to the heart. But that inward heart change, that heart conviction, if it's brought about by God, it can't stand alone. It always has to be accompanied by an outward change. Faith apart from works is dead. Like Jesus said, you shall know a tree by its fruit. That's not just true for sin in the heart that necessarily produces sinful actions. It's also true for repentance in the heart that necessarily produces repentant actions. Look again at verse 3. If you're really returning to the Lord with all your heart, Samuel tells the Israelites, show it, right? Manifest it, prove it by putting away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. He challenges them to back up what they say with their actions, to back up their inward conviction with outward change. Because it would have been totally meaningless if the Israelites said in their hearts, wow, our idolatry, it's wrong. What we've done to forsake God in this way, it's, it's just so wicked. But then they keep, their, they keep their idols around. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so verse 4 tells us that the heart change was real, because it was accompanied by a change in life. The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. True repentance is marked by both inward and outward change. Third, I think this one is, is really important because I think it's often overlooked. True repentance isn't just turning away from sin. It's also turning to God. Look at what Samuel says. Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. That's the turning away from sin. But notice how that doesn't stand alone. And direct your hearts to the Lord. Why is that so important? Well, imagine if the prodigal son, you know the story from Luke chapter 15. Imagine the prodigal son came to himself, realized the misery of his situation, and he decides, you know what? I'm just going to move to a different far country. 
because the situation I'm in right now, it's, it's really rough. Well, great, right? Glad you're getting out of that bad situation. But what makes you think that that new far country is going to be any better? No, the only true, lasting, meaningful solution to his problem was to go back home. To live in the joy and the love and the care of his father. Any other solution, changing his zip code, would have been just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So if your idea of repentance is to just stop that sin, whatever it may be, well, that may work for a period of time. Or maybe you have just like superhuman willpower and you, you have this like extraterrestrial commitment and you never commit that sin again. But knowing what the Bible teaches about sin, that it's an issue of the heart and that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, well, all that's going to happen is the first sin comes back stronger or another more egregious sin takes its place. And either way, the last state is worse than the first. So true repentance isn't just turning away from sin. Of course, that's an integral part, but it's also simultaneously turning to God. So where that sin used to rule your heart and where you used to turn to that sin for satisfaction, now God rules your heart and God is what satisfies you. It's what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, This idea that you can't just get rid of your desire for a sin and just kind of leave a vacuum in your affections. You're just going to fill it with another sin. You must replace that desire for sin with a desire for something greater and better and more satisfying. And that's God. Samuel knows this. And so he doesn't just tell the Israelites to put away their idols. Sure, they could have done that for a season. But at that first sign of weakness, those idols were going to come right back to claim their throne on Israel's heart. Unless there was a simultaneous turning towards God. Because repentance isn't just turning away from sin. It's also turning to God. And so as we think about the Israelites' example for us of true repentance, true repentance isn't just mourning, right? It's mourning over offending God. True repentance isn't just inward conviction. It's also outward change. And true repentance isn't just turning away from sin. It's also turning to God. Let me ask each of you now, have you repented of your sins? It's all well and good to see the Israelites uh, finally repenting of their sins. But the most important thing for you to consider this morning is whether you've repented of your sins. Have you repented of your sins? Maybe you thought you repented because you mourned. But now you realize that you were only mourning over the consequences of your sin. And you, you, you never even considered the fact that you have sinned against a holy God. Maybe you thought you'd repented because you thought you were inwardly convicted. But now you realize that that feeling of conviction never led to any lasting outward change. 
Maybe you thought you'd repented because you stopped whatever the major sin in your life was, but now you realize that that was never accompanied with any turning toward God. You'd simply replaced your love for one sin with love for another. Whatever it might be, the point isn't to dwell on that. Uh, Was my repentance real or or was it not? Uh, Was it real or was it not? The point is to repent now. Right now, acknowledge to God how you live in disobedience and in sin and find forgiveness through the gospel by repenting and believing that Christ died for your sins. And you can include in your list of sins your incomplete and imperfect repentance. Let me just remind those of you who struggle with this, right? struggle with, did I really repent? Our salvation is not based on a perfect repentance. Our salvation is based on a perfect Savior. Repent today, find salvation in Him. Which brings us then to the next section of the narrative, which we see the deliverance in verses 7 through 11. This is how God responds to the Israelites' repentance by delivering them from the hand of the Philistines. In their repentance, they're brought very low in humility, but we know that God gives grace to the humble. God lifts the downcast. And that's what he does here. So the Philistines get word of the fact that Israel is kind of having this big convocation of sorts and uh, they sense danger. And they, they don't know that Samuel's leading them in national repentance. For all they know, the Israelites are getting ready for battle. And so the Philistines gather their forces and they begin to attack Israel. And with the memory of the last major battle still in their collective memory banks, right, 20 years ago, Battle of Aphek, that total disaster, well, the Israelites are terrified. And so what do they do? Well, they do something that, given their recent track record, is actually really surprising. They pray. They ask Samuel to pray for them. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. Remember, this is the same nation that earlier, in a battle against this same adversary, thought that their clever tactics would deliver them. Leaning completely on their own self-sufficiency. But here they're at the end of their rope. They're helpless. They're hopeless. They're seeing how all of that previously got them nowhere. And so they humble themselves and they pray. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll be able to relate to this, where we're guilty of the exact same thing. We try every single trick in the book, every tactic and every strategy and every, every fad to try to solve our problem, uh, to address our dilemma. We'll lean on our own understanding until we're blue in the face. And it takes God bringing us very low to the end of our rope with nowhere else to turn for us to finally give up on our own self-sufficiency and pray. To finally give up on our own self-dependence and depend on him. What happens when the Israelites pray? Well, God delivers them with a mighty deliverance. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Interestingly, it's exactly what Hannah said would happen in her song. Remember all the way back in chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 10. Hannah declares, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. 
That's exactly what happens here. Now, one other thing I want you to notice, and, and I think this is the, the, the beauty of going through a book chapter by chapter like we've been doing with First Samuel. I want you to notice the parallels between the Battle of Aphek from chapter 4 and the Battle of Ebenezer from chapter 7. At the Battle of Aphek, the Israelites trusted in their ungodly leaders, Hophni and Phinehas. And as a result, they didn't repent or pray, but they put their trust in the ark. Let us bring the ark here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies, they say. But at the battle of Ebenezer, the Israelites trust in their godly leader, Samuel. And as a result, they repent, they pray, they put their trust in God himself And so they say, verse 8, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The battle of Aphek, the Israelites thought that they were in power and they tried to manipulate God. The battle of Ebenezer, the Israelites knew that they were helpless and they simply trusted in the Lord. The battle of Aphek, the text says that when the Israelites saw the ark, All of Israel gave a mighty shout that the earth resounded. While the battle of Ebenezer, the mighty sound comes not from the Israelites, but from God himself. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day. The battle of Aphek would be be remembered for generations to come as as a disaster of just epic proportions and it was memorialized by the name of Phineas's son, Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel. Well, the battle of Ebenezer would be remembered for generations to come as a powerful example of God's saving hand. Also memorialized by a name, Ebenezer, meaning stone of help. Which brings us to the end of the narrative. Look at the remembrance. We saw the repentance Then we saw the deliverance, right? God's response to Israel's repentance. And now we have the remembrance, which is the Israelites' response to God's deliverance. God gives them this great victory over the Philistines. In order to commemorate it, to remember it, Samuel takes a stone and makes a memorial. And he calls it Ebenezer, stone of help. Because till now, the Lord has helped us. And so that stone would be prominently located there so that for generations, Israelites who passed by would remember that till now the Lord has helped us. So that children walking by would ask their parents, hey, what's that big stone thing over there? And they could tell them about the faithfulness of God displayed in the Battle of Ebenezer. Till now the Lord has helped us. You see, God wants his people to always remember his faithfulness. And that's because God's track record of past faithfulness is what his people can always look to for comfort in present circumstances and faith despite future uncertainty. It's why God always introduces himself to Israel in the Old Testament as I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why does he do that? Well, he wants them to remember that past event so that they can trust him in the present and trust him in the future because he's the same God who helped them through that Exodus redemption. 
I, the Lord, your God, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's people can count on him to be just as faithful in the future as he has been in the past because God doesn't change. But this is the most important thing I'll say all morning. If God wanted his people to remember those redemptive events, the, the exodus or the battle of Ebenezer or any other event from the Old Testament which we see God's hand at work in redeeming his people, if God wants his people to remember those redemptive events, well, how much more should his people remember the redemption event that all of those other redemption events ultimately point to? The cross of his son, Jesus. Because at the cross, God defeated not just the Philistines or the Egyptians with their mighty armies and weapons, but he defeated Satan himself. Armed with the greatest weapon he has against us, which is our sin, the guilt of our sin. Satan stands there like in a courtroom accusing us of the sin that we've committed. He is not worthy of heaven. She does not deserve to be in your presence. They deserve to go to hell, and he is absolutely right. Each and every one of us stands condemned because of our sin. But God, in his love for sinners like us, sent his son Jesus to die for our sin. To take our sin upon himself and and die in our place. To suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we might be righteous. To make us fit for heaven. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because we've earned anything, but simply because of his grace towards us so that each and every person who repents and believes can be saved. The cross, the basis of our salvation, the cross is for every believer, the Ebenezer that brings us through everything that life throws at us. The gospel is the Ebenezer that we must look to every single day. Like, are you going through a really difficult trial right now? Whether it's a physical trial or trouble in your marriage or a disappointing turn of events or or whatever it might be. Brother, sister, remember that till now the Lord has helped you. Ebenezer. And that the same God who sent his son to die for you, to save you from your sin, the gospel, will also help you through this trial. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you going through a deep struggle with sin? Are you wondering if you're ever going to be able to be freed from the grasp of that one sin that always seems to rear its ugly head in your life? Well, remember that till now the Lord has helped you, Ebenezer. He's already brought you this far in your sanctification. And he's not just going to cast you aside now, leave your glorification half done. That sin that you must continue to fight, that sin is a sin that Christ has already died for. The gospel And so you will, brother or sister, you will grow in obedience because God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Are you going through a deep battle for your faith? Are you wondering if you're going to make it? Are you struggling with your assurance? 
remember that till now the Lord has helped you. Ebenezer, your salvation's not dependent on your faithfulness or your love for him. It's based on his faithfulness and his love for you. And that's so, shown so clearly through the gospel. It's promised so clearly he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you've been forgiven of your sin, the cross stands today to be your Ebenezer. That memorial in your life that must remind you each and every single day, till now the Lord has helped me. And here's the thing. Just like till now the Lord has helped us for the Israelites, it didn't just include the the good times and the victories and the celebrations But it also includes the defeats and the destruction of Shiloh and the losing of the ark. It's a reminder of how God used all of those things for the good of of his people. How God used all of those things to bring about repentance and make them more holy. Well, in the same way, we can't just pick and choose the pleasant experiences in our lives and say, yeah, in those things, the Lord has helped me. We need to be able to look at the trials the afflictions, the the lowest and hardest points of our lives and trust that a sovereign God was no less our help in those times than in the best of times. That the same God who leads us besides still waters also is with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Till now the Lord has helped us. Can you say that in every single joy and every single trial? in every single victory, and in every single affliction, in every kind mercy, and every loving discipline. Can you say it? Till now, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer. Many of you will be familiar with the name George Whitfield. He's a preacher who played an important role in the First Great Awakening, supposedly preached to over 10 million people over his lifetime. One time, Whitfield's preaching, and a young, unconverted man who grew up in the English countryside named Robert Robinson came to hear Whitfield preach on John the Baptist. A generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come was the text that morning. Well, the haunting memory of that sermon stuck with Robinson, and three years later, at the age of 22, he gets saved. And it wasn't long after his conversion that he wrote the now famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Well, that song's a prayer that looks back to his salvation and prays that God would give him the grace to persevere to the end. I want to to draw your attention to uh, the second verse because it's based on our text from this morning. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Well, Robinson would become a pastor and a preacher, Uh, But later in life, he found himself drifting away from the things of the Lord. 
And it may be apocryphal, but the story goes that in this season of drifting away from the Lord, uh, he runs into a woman who is singing that hymn. Not knowing who he was, she turns to him and tells him about how wonderfully this hymn had ministered to her soul. And that supposedly crushed Robinson as he remembered the joy he once had in the gospel. He who had penned this beautiful verse had completely forgotten his own Ebenezer and had to be reminded by a complete stranger. Brothers and sisters, I I don't know where your heart is at this morning. Only the Lord knows. Maybe you're joyfully walking with the Lord. Maybe you're struggling through a deep trial. Maybe you find yourself just miserably backsliding like Robert Robinson did. Well, regardless of where you're at, let me just summarize 1 Samuel chapter 7, this, this entire sermon, with just two reminders. First, repent. Right? Regardless of, of, of what you think about your previous repentances, regardless of where you are right now spiritually, all I know is that you can repent now. Whether you're joyfully walking with the Lord and, and fighting sin, or you're struggling mightily, Repentance is for you today. And second, remember our Ebenezer. Remember that in the gospel, God has given his son for you and that the same God who helped you till now will help you by his grace to reach glory. Let's pray. Father, indeed, till now you have helped us. Lord, we look to the cross, we look to the gospel, we think of how every single providentially ordained event in our lives has brought us to this place. But Lord, now grant us hearts that desire to repent where our lives are not conformed to your holiness. Grant us hearts that seek after you Let's seek to remind ourselves each and every day of the glories of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that if there are any in this room who do not know you, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.